And so, Lord, make your word live to us today. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. The head of a large English mental institution once said this, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. That statement is no less pertinent today than it was a generation ago. Perhaps the problem is even more serious in our day. Sadly, there are many people all around us, working beside us, living next to us, going to our schools, filling our churches, people who long deep within their soul to know that they are forgiven. These are not people, many of them, who are unacquainted with the gospel. They've heard the message of the cross time and time again, but somehow lack that assurance that indeed their sins are forgiven. And so we come today to a communion service in which the cross is central. And that's the answer to everyone's dilemma. It is Jesus Christ. We must remember and always keep this foremost in our minds that Christianity is a rescue religion. This is the main theme found throughout the pages of Scripture, both Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. We read in Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is a faithful saying and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And 1 John chapter 4, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Christianity is a rescue religion. And Jesus came to save. When John the Baptist came on the scene to announce that Messiah had come, he made it clear that he was a witness to the light, but he wasn't the light. He was telling people about the light so that all people could be saved. He said, the one who comes after me surpasses me because actually he was before me. And at his baptism, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven and remain on him. And I have known him. I have seen him. The one who sent the Spirit on him declared the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Son and the Spirit coming down and the voice of the Father, the triune God, announced this indeed is the Savior sent to save men. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, what were his words? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, to every Jew, that metaphor would have been very easy to understand. Every Jew knew exactly what John was talking about. The Lamb of God who takes 
sin away. You go back into the Old Testament, you find out that the Old Testament system of sacrifice came to us from the very beginning, long before Moses. It is Abel in Genesis chapter 4, not too long after creation, who offers up animal offerings from the firstborn of his flock. And altars are built and offerings and animals slain, somewhat random until the time of Moses. And then when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he also gave him detailed regulations regarding offerings and sacrifices. The book of Leviticus enumerates many of these sacrifices, the different ones that were given on the different days, some a sin offering, some a burnt offering, some a thank offering, some a fellowship offering, all the protocols and procedures to regularize their worship given in the book of Leviticus, which often is tough for us to read, right? You start at your Bible reading in Genesis and it goes pretty exciting and pretty well and into the book of Exodus and not too bad. And then you get to Leviticus and you say, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> I have a record of all the sermons I've preached at South that now number almost 1,200. Not one of them has as their main text the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Until today. But there's another reason to change that. It's because there's an amazing story in the book of Leviticus. You see, the centerpiece for the sacrificial system was that forgiveness was based on life for life. We read in Leviticus 17 in verse 11, the verse I'll have for you on the screen, for the life of the flesh, the life of every creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for your life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And life must be given for life to be rescued. We read in the book of Hebrews these words. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission, atonement, or forgiveness of sins. And so the cross is the centerpiece of our faith because on the cross Jesus shed his blood as an atonement for our sin to satisfy the righteous law of a holy God. And without the death of Christ on the cross... There is no forgiveness for you. The sacrificial system got off to a rocky start. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9. After a detailed architectural plan was given to build the tabernacle, sometimes called the tent of meeting, in the book of Exodus... The book of Leviticus follows up with the regulations regarding primarily the sacrifices to be given. Finally, the tabernacle is erected. And Aaron, for the first time in Leviticus chapter 9, offers a sacrifice 
That sacrifice is offered on the altar outside the tabernacle and then the blood is taken often into the tabernacle and there put on the altar of atonement. So Aaron makes the sacrifice. We read down near the end of the chapter, chapter 9, verse 22. Aaron came out, lifted up his hands toward the people, blessed them, and having sacrificed the sin offering and the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. And Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came down from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions that were on the altar. Now, they're still at the foot of Mount Sinai. Just months after leaving Egypt. Or weeks, actually. And they were used to seeing fire on the mountain, and now fire comes down onto the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and it consumes the offering. And notice the response of the people, the last portion of verse chapter 9. They shouted for joy and fell in worship. Chapter 10, verse 1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, probably long poles with uh, a censer, a, a cup or plate at the end, and burning coals on it mixed with some type of incense. They added the incense, and they went in to offer fire and sacrifice to the Lord, but they offered something unauthorized, the NIV calls it unauthorized fire. The old King James says strange fire. Whatever it was, it was, as the text says, contrary to the command of God. So fire, this time not coming down from heaven to consume the sacrifice, but coming out from the tent of meeting to consume Nadab and Abihu. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us. And Aaron, the last part of verse 3, remained stone silent. There was no joy and rejoicing that day. How would you feel if you were a worshiper, knowing that God any moment could break out in fire and that you could be the victim? Historically, we jump to chapter 16 because there are just various regulations given but the actual story picks up with chapter 16 in verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord in the improper way may I remind you and the Lord said to Moses tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain remember the tabernacle had two places the front part was the holy place and the back part was the holy of holies or the holiest place tell your brother Aaron not to come to that most holy holiest of place behind the curtain the veil this is that beautiful embroidered cloth of purple and red it had embroidered on it the cherubim behind the curtain is where God dwelt and Actual gold cherubim leaning over the Ark of the Covenant and on top of the Ark, the mercy seat, or as it's stated here, the atonement cover. 
Don't go in whenever you want to, Aaron, even though you're the high priest, because I'm in the tent, and you cannot be f- appear before me without a blood offering. So Aaron prepares, verse 3, a bull for the sin offering, a ram for the burnt offering. He even changes his clothes from the glorious, bespectacled garments of a high priest with jewels upon them to simple linen and goes into the temple with a sacrifice. But notice in verse 5, they also have not only the bull and the ram for a sin offering and a burnt offering, Verse 5 says, From the Israelite community, Aaron is to take two male goats for a sin offering. Now let me point out the fact that there are two goats that make up one offering. That is very important. Two goats, but one offering, one sin offering, and then also a ram for a burnt offering. So Aaron offers the bull, verse 6, for his own sin. You see, he's a man, and even though he's high priest, he can't go into the tabernacle without blood for his own sin. So he takes the blood of the bull into the tabernacle after slaughtering it. Actually, before he goes into the temple or tabernacle with that blood, verse 8 says... He brings the two goats out before the Lord and they cast lots to see which goat, this is verse 8, which goat the Lord will choose and which goat will be the what? Scapegoat. One goat for the Lord, we learn from verse 15, this is the goat to be slaughtered. And one goat for the people, this is called the scapegoat, the azazel is the Hebrew term. A very difficult term, I'm told, to interpret. Hebrew scholars can't come up with the exact meaning. The best they can do is that it means to banish or remove. Azazel, to banish or completely eliminate. The Lord gets a goat, and the people get a goat. Interesting. The word scapegoat probably first was seen in the English in Tyndale's translation of this section of Scripture, and it simply means the escape goat. We use the term scapegoat for someone who gets blamed for something they didn't do, or they're willing to take the blame on so that someone else can be protected. That's the scapegoat, and it comes from this section of Scripture. Now, verse 11 tells us that Aaron does go in and he offers the blood for his own sin, verse 11. Think of it, the first time Aaron enters the tent, the last thing that happened from that tent was fire came out and killed his two sons. Don't you think he would be a little bit shaky? Holding the same censers with incense and blood from the animal. Will God accept it? But he's following the order. He's following the plan and command of God. And indeed, God does accept the sacrifice. Verse 15, then he comes out and he slaughters the goat for the sin offering for the people. And he takes the blood behind the curtain to do with it as he did to the, with the bull's blood. Seven times the blood was sprinkled on the atonement cover 
Because they not only have to purify the tabernacle, Aaron has to have forgiveness for his sins, and the people have to be forgiven for their sins. There are three things that have to be sanctified and cleansed by blood. So here's the first goat. It is the goat that is slaughtered. And the goat is slaughtered by shedding its blood. And the blood, may I remind you, is primarily for God. God is a holy and righteous God. And He cannot excuse sin. Punishment must be made. And so the system in the Old Testament was that life for life. An animal would give its life blood up so that the people could be forgiven. The blood was primarily for God. Remember the Passover in Exodus when the death angel came through and killed all the firstborn? But it was said to the nation of Israel, you are to sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and put it on the outside of the doorpost. And then you go inside and hide. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The death angel will not visit. Don't you think if you were the eldest son inside the home that night, you would be a little bit shaky? But God said, when I see the blood, the blood's for God. How does God view the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place on the cross? 1 Peter chapter 1, we are redeemed not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the precious blood of Christ. God calls the blood of Christ what? Precious. Say it with me. God calls the blood of Christ precious. That's how he evaluates it. Doesn't really make any difference what you think. God says, it satisfies my justice. And so God demands the blood be shed so that he, his righteousness can be satisfied. And Christ, our sin offering, the Lamb of God, had to die on the cross and shed his blood and give up his life so that our sins could be satisfied. And when Jesus was received into heaven, the Father was saying, I accept the sacrifice of the Son. The trembling sinner feareth that God can e'er forget, but one great payment cleareth God's memory from our debt, the blood of Christ. But there's a second goat, and we come down to verse 18 of chapter 16. Then he shall come out, they shall come out to the altar, after having sprinkled the blood on the atonement cover to satisfy the justice of God, he comes back out to the altar on the outside that's before the Lord and before all the people. By the way, did you notice that he applied the blood in the secret place? The slaughtered goat was slaughtered in public, but the blood applied in the secret place, the place where God dwells. Jesus was sacrificed for all to see. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to me. The crucifixion was public, but the offering of the blood of Christ before the Father as the Lamb was done in the Holy of Holies in heaven. But it was done, and God is satisfied. 
Now you come out to the second goat. It is called the live goat. Verse 20. When Aaron is finished making atonement for the most holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and all the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall then send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for this task, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, the second goat's for us. What a clear, unmistakable picture that your sins are what? Gone. Lost. Never to be retrieved again. By the way, the two animals show very clearly that sin can be taken away by someone other than the sinner. You cannot pay for your sin. But Jesus did. And he brings both goats together in perfect picture, shedding his blood to be placed before the Father so that his wrath is appeased and our God is satisfied. And showing us beyond all shadow of a doubt by the goat that escaped that our sins are gone. Psalm 103 says this, He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor reward us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. To the depths of the bottom of the sea, our sins are gone. Why? Because you're a good person? No. Why? Because when, since you've come to Christ, you've never sinned? Absolutely not. You've sinned this morning. You'll sin today. It would be impossible for you to keep your record clean, but your record is not based on your performance. It's based on the performance of Christ on the cross. And my sins are atoned for by the blood, but more than that, they're gone, never to be retrieved again. What a beautiful picture. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that took place just nine days after the beginning of the new year, Rosh Hashanah, that they would have a new start and a fresh start with their sins totally forgiven. Verse 29 says, this is to be a lasting ordinance, the tenth day of the seventh month. That's about late September for us, but the beginning of their new year. Verse 30, because on this day, day of atonement, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, get this, you will be clean. From all your sin. 
You say, Pastor, you don't know about my sin. You don't know about my Savior. It's, it's horrendous for you to think that your sin is greater than his love. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And the infinite sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross will save you from all your sins. The priest confesses the sins of all the people and puts his hand upon the animal and off the animal goes. And when you believe in Jesus Christ and confess your sin, you are embracing Christ with an empty hand of faith and all of your sins transferred to the Lamb of God who takes away, takes away the sin of the world. Now I understand Jesus is that Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes my sin away. Away. It's gone. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I don't know that I've done enough. My friend, you can't do nothing. Stop doing. Believe. But I don't know if the blood is good enough. Good enough, it's good enough for God. It should be good enough for you. Embrace the sacrifice of Christ and your sins will be forever gone. Talk about sin. David committed adultery with another man's wife and to cover it up killed the man in a secret way so that no one knew. No one knew. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> there was a messenger who knew. Oh, wait a minute. God knew. And he told the prophet, and the prophet told David, you're the man, you've sinned. And for a year, David had been trying to cover his sin. Isn't that a horrible task? Trying to cover your sin, deny it ever happened. <laughs> Psalm 32, David now confesses his sin. And he said, blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the person to whom the Lord will not reckon sin. And later on, David said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, we need forgiveness of sin as far as its penalty goes, and we need the washing of our conscience clean as far as guilt goes, and the two goats do it all. So my friend, trust in Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven. Dear child of God, if you're not sure you're a Christian, Repent this morning and believe the gospel. And once you do, put your faith in trust, not in your good works, but in your great Savior who died in your place. And then as a Christian, you can say to the enemy, who is the accuser of the brethren, I will overcome you by the blood of the Lamb. Martha Snell Nicholson has given us a wonderful poem about this very thing, one of my favorites. She said, I sinned, and straightway post-haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this 
soul. This thing of clay and sod has sinned. Tis true that he has named your name, but I demand his death. You have said the soul that sins, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous judge do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O oh God, was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke. Every jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait. Suppose his guilt were all transferred to me and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless before your throne. And after the words of Jesus, Satan fled away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love, for every word my dear Savior spoke was true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made a sacrifice for sinners that is pleasing to the Father, that sends the devil running and brings peace to the heart of a guilty sinner. Today I pray that some will cry out, O oh God, save me. In Jesus' name, amen.